Hi, I'm Jayant Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's analysis podcast. Thanks for joining us. The US presidential election is going to take place today and for us here in India the results should start coming in by tomorrow morning. That's the evening of November 3rd in the US and the morning of November 4th for us. So this is a hugely consequential election of course that much needs no explaining. But we thought we'd use this episode as a preview to clarify some of the major issues still at play. Because there is a chance a rather large chance that this election may not be straightforward a huge proportion of voters in the us have opted for early voting and mail in voting and in different states there are different rules for the counting of these votes if you followed president trump on twitter basically over the last 6 months he has tried to claim that mail in voting will lead to massive voter fraud and the republicans are likely to throw in legal challenges in several states regarding counting This is just one of the scenarios of course that we'll discuss in some detail and that could play out. We'll also get into the closing messages of each campaign and where things stand now as we head into our election coverage. I'm joined by Narayan Lakshman, associate editor of The Hindu, who was also The Hindu's former US correspondent. Narayan, thank you for joining us on In Focus today and uh, welcome to the podcast. Hi Jayan, thank you for having me. Right uh so we're speaking one day ahead of uh, one day ahead of when we will get to see the US election results so very important day and a very important review of some major issues that we'll cover today so the first thing narayan that i wanted to ask you is uh, something to explain for the benef- for the benefit of many of our listeners uh, because this can get uh, to be a confusing issue sometimes but um is it possible that we may not get a concrete result by uh, by by tomorrow uh in the sense um, you know what are some of the scenarios that we could be looking at here because this is something that uh, president trump brings up a lot that complaining that uh, this time it could take weeks before a winner is actually declared in this election so what's the background to that and what are some of the scenarios that could play out uh absolutely that is a vital question uh, jayant and as we know in the us electoral system the it's not direct election or proportional it is more a system of the electoral college whereby uh, each us state has a certain number of electoral college votes and within each states it's a first past the post system so it's a winner take all uh, whoever wins uh, one state gets all the electoral college votes for that state um and the the point is that in the us given its federal structure and so forth every state has very different rules about how it tallies votes uh combine that with the uh, so absolutely uh, radically unusual circumstances of 2020 which is the coronavirus uh, the covid-19 pandemic and you have a situation where uh, votes are very largely many many more votes are coming in uh, this year than in any other election uh, through mail in voting uh, rather than in person voting which will happen on november 3rd so this means that given the difference uh, difference in the rules for counting uh, in each state you're going to have very very different deadlines timelines when the results are declared uh, and therein lies the sort of extended possibly tortuous process which we're going to see starting tomorrow uh, which will 
there will certainly be a sense of momentum uh, towards each candidate in each state, which we'll get an indication of on November 3rd. Uh, that is the night of November 3rd in the US, which is for listeners in India, uh, Wednesday morning. Um, but the actual formal conclusion of every count in every state, the allocation of the electoral votes in that state could drag on not just for days, but possibly weeks. And there could be further complications uh, in terms of, uh, you know, a legal challenge, but we can get into that going forward. Right. Uh, so just to sort of uh, play that out a little bit more, is it possible that, um, you know, so that this counting start at different times in different states? So could there be some sort of counting that also starts happening? As you said, because there has been a large amount of mail-in voting already, could some counting already have started by now and could some trends be evident uh, even even before, um, you know, for for, our, for 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 Indian viewers in Wednesday morning. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, so for example, consider Florida, which is the largest swing state with 29 votes. Florida allows its election offices to process mail-in ballots 22 days before voting day. And so, yes, as you correctly noted, we will have some indications of where that's where the tally of mail-in votes is heading, uh, that could possibly come by Tuesday night U.S. time, which is Wednesday morning here again. Um, but again, that that is not going to be the end of the story in many states. There, it, it really uh, will depend on how the you know the momentum swings towards one candidate or the other in each state. But in many cases, it may not allow for a decisive. Of uh, sort of final outcome to be announced, um, and again, just to go back to give, giving you a little, uh, giving our listeners a bit more background, uh, there are only eleven uh, eleven states that will report only some vote tallies by election night, including Pennsylvania and Nevada. There are some twenty four states which will declare most but not all results on election night, and these include a large number of swing states, including Michigan, Ohio, Virginia. Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, North Carolina, Georgia, Texas, and Arizona. And if the races go down to the wire in some of these as well, they might, that too would delay or forestall the announcement of a final election results. So again, if uh, just as one of the sources is the 538 blog of the New York Times, uh, they have a good outline of which states have, uh, you know, which kind of rules and when they are expected to declare results. So you can really get into a pretty huge amount of detail there in terms of anticipating when these results will come out. Uh, one more thing to say is that um, in some of the key swing states, such as Mich Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, the Republican-controlled legislatures there have refused requests to allow early counting. Like I said, with Florida, they have allowed it 22 days before voting day. But there's a push and pull, and the politics of, uh, of the, the sort of partisan politics plays into what each state has done in terms of these rules. So that also makes for a very interesting story and certainly will have an impact on the final picture. Yeah. And uh, just today, and I think over the past couple of days, um, if you look at uh, President Trump's Twitter and what he's been saying in these uh, series of rallies that he's been holding ahead of the elections, uh, he keeps going back to this refrain saying, uh, we must know the results of the election by the evening of November 3rd. Uh, that's how it's always been. That's how it should be this time. So, you know, what's the kind of what's the kind of game there that he's trying to play? Uh, I think it's basically uh, as a, a lot of his Twitter posts are, it is part uh, intimidation uh, or part in uh, sort of 
hinting at the possibility that he he and his team campaign team will take action of some kind should the tallying process get dragged out too much uh, thereby again more concretely hinting at a sense of illegitimacy of the entire election process and that is something that has really been caught up in a political storm of its own with twitter itself sticking fact check notices uh, on many of his posts starting i think way back in the summer uh, about uh, you know the fact that statistically there has not been fraud associated with mail in voting in the past and mail in voting is a very very common thing states in such as colorado have been doing mail in voting for many many years and their whole election system in many of these states, such states is geared up to handle this perfectly well and in fact very efficiently and quite close to election night if not on election night itself so i think uh, president trump has been very slowly but successfully in the minds of some uh, chipping away at the legitimacy question and uh, i think you're going to find that legal action is probably the strongest sort of threat that his team will be able to wield uh, should they choose to do so we have as you said in uh, some of this his recent rallies heard him say uh, he's not going to possibly declare any result or any declare himself a winner basically should the mail in uh, sorry should the in person voting show him leading uh, or possibly even winning in number of these critical states but instead he will hold back from that such a declaration and instead prepare a solid legal uh, attack uh, and there again there is a very interesting back story which people have been looking at which is the uh, republican controlled senate's uh, almost unseemly rush to confirm uh, the uh, ninth member of the supreme court amy coney barrett in the right. literally dying hours of the 2020 election campaign uh, thereby you know bulking up the conservative majority of the court and obviously uh, although we cannot tell whether this will happen for sure or not uh, vastly improving the odds that the court uh, should it have to rule on a presidential uh, election outcome uh, potentially improves the chances for someone like mr trump right um so the other thing i wanted to ask you is um the other trend that i've read is that, that a record number of people have uh, voted early in this year's election um as you said because of the unprecedented circumstances of 2020 there's been a lot of uh, mail in voting um it, and by some counts apparently that's almost two third of the uh, kind of actual voting population or the voting uh, proportion of people who vote in 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 previous elections so what can we read into that um given the fact that um it's uh, it given the fact that president trump has sort of raised all these questions about mail in voting can we assume that the vast majority of people who've done this early voting are democrats and that vote would basically go to uh, mr biden uh, absolutely jan that's spot on and in a sense it's quite uh, almost amusing if it weren't so uh, tragic that the the pandemic itself has been driven by partisan politics and has got fully politicized so uh, you know at the what i mean by that is sort of undergirding this trend that we've observed is the fact that many either republicans conservatives or specifically trump supporters have going by the reports that we've seen over the last many months uh, shown a sense of disregard or disdain uh, for the basic steps necessary to counter this pandemic uh, as recommended by epidemiologists and other scientists and medical professionals and that includes obviously the use of masks social distancing uh hand washing lockdowns all of it and uh, of course they have uh, they have derived strength for their views um from none other than Mr Trump himself and his tweets 
where he has quite openly disparaged uh, all of these measures. And I think the fact is that this has led to a very, very sharp pol uh, intensification of the already existing polarization uh, of the electorate between conservatives, Republicans on one side and liberals, progressives, Democrats on the other. Uh, Joe Biden on the flip side has been even through the debates, uh, the presidential debates that we saw, uh, and even in all of his campaigns, been talking about, uh, you know, following what science says on the pandemic, uh, sticking to these uh, basic measures to curb the spread of the virus. And I think this has, for better or worse, or for whatever effect it has on the election outcome, got translated into the way people vote. So um, from uh, so basically what I mean is that in mail-in voting, there is a serious disproportionality in the ballot requests by party. And that is something that has already been observed and statistically tallied up. Uh, so basically, Democrats have requested far more ballots than Republicans across the board. For example, even a month ago in Florida, nearly 2.3 million Democrats requested uh, had requested mail-in ballots compared to about 1.6 million Republicans. In Pennsylvania, another critical state in this election, a swing state, nearly 1.5 million Democrats uh, had requested a mail-in ballot, and that's about three times the request from Republicans in that state. Uh, in North Carolina, Democrats were outpacing Republicans by 524,000 requests to little less than 200,000 requests. Same in Iowa, number of other critical states. Um, so this is also further combined with as I said, with what Mr. Trump has been tweeting about mail-in voting as, uh, you know, tied up with fraudulence and a sort of democratic uh, conspiracy theories, uh, but also, uh, you know, worrying trends that we have seen, for example, an ACLU report of, of the 2018 midterm election found that younger voters, first-time voters and voters from racial and ethnic minorities were actually much more likely to cast mail-in ballots that got rejected. Uh, in fact, so too were votes from overseas uh, uh, American citizens, including armed services personnel. And so this combined with Mr. Trump's vociferous attacks on mail-in voting uh, for several months now may dissuade some of these minority groups. That is the fear that the Democratic Party has. And it may actually dissuade Democratic supporters from voting either way. Because obviously, on the one hand, they do they, they tend to follow the idea of you know social distancing and not being in, turning up in person in large groups to vote. Right. At the same time, there are these fears and there is this sort of uh, history of rejected votes as well uh, looming over uh, mail-in voting. Right. Um, so again, um, you know, given that uh, you know all of us follow the election results, um, this is the age of smartphones and interactive graphics. Um, and you know you will have this map of the U.S. and you will see sort of parts that are that turn red and blue. Um, now, supposing the, a large bulk of the Republican electorate actually turns up on election day, you know, following this, um, you know, if they take this this theory of um, mail-in ballots somehow being um, you know fraudulent seriously, hmm. will you sort of will will there will there be some initial trends where you might see a lot of st states turning red as those votes are counted first, and could that uh, somehow become a problem? Um, if Mr. Trump kind of seizes on that. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the way this electoral college works, uh, and it does have, you have the blue walls on the two of the east and west coasts and, uh, coasts and of the US, and you have the 
sort of the Red Sea in the middle, which includes the mountainous mm. Midwest, the South, uh, and so forth. Um, that picture, if you are being quite rigorous about it, that picture can actually attain a color only when the final results are declared. And so I think right. you're not going to see that happening in real time. You will get a sense of the the proportion of voting that has happened and been counted in each state going one way or the other. But anyone who has watched U.S. elections for a while will know that you have to wait until the final tally and not even, I mean, in a sense, the process is also preempted by many of these media, uh, prominent uh, American media, including uh, newswire services, who have reporters on the ground in polling stations who not only look at these counts that are, uh, that are being formally announced, but also, you know, they have exit polls, they, they assess the mood on the ground and they make a call. So without naming names, there are very big news uh, service agencies that that make a call in each state. And that is potentially going to be misleading in an election as unusual as this one, because you are expecting sort of a nail biting finish in a state like, let's say, Pennsylvania, possibly swinging the entire election. So I, I think anyone who's seen U.S. elections in action before will wait until it is formally called by the county authorities in each state. I mean, uh, the county authorities at the county level and then the state authorities in each state uh, before deciding that a state has gone red, red or blue, regardless of what the White House is saying and indeed regardless of what the Biden campaign is saying. Um, and this has come a little bit to uh, the closing days of the campaign on both sides. So uh, President Trump has repeatedly been claiming basically that the U.S. is over the coronavirus pandemic. He keeps saying, he keeps using this term, uh, we're rounding the corner, etc. Though uh, recent numbers indicate that they're basically in the midst of a very deadly second, uh, second or third wave, uh, which is coinciding with winter. As many experts, as many public health experts pointed out that, you know, they pointed out this would happen. Um, so and that is sweeping across some very key Midwestern states that uh, Mr. Trump needs to win if he's to retain the White House. So is that ultimately going to define uh, this election, despite Mr. Trump's attempts to sort of change the topic and say, oh, yeah, coronavirus is over? I mean, that, that is like the question, I think, giant of 2020 and in this election, because uh, I think as we uh, touched upon earlier, it, it really defines the two very, very polarized, bitterly polarized uh, parts of the U.S. electorate and the political system who are not even talking across each other, but just not even talking to each other anymore. And that is the Democrats and Republicans. And look, it depends on who you ask. If you if you do ask the Democrats and if you look at what uh, Joe Biden has been saying, uh, he is not kind of uh, shying away from admitting the severity of the problem that there have been in excess of 9 million cases, that there have been 231,000 deaths. And, you know, we could be in a scenario, like you said, but the summer where, again, you're looking at a thousand plus Americans dying every day. So it is uh, very, very dire from a strictly medical or epidemiology, epidemiological perspective. Uh, and yes, the Democrats seem to be on board with that. If you, however, ask uh, Mr. Trump and indeed his followers who are quite considerable number across, as we saw in 2016, the Rust Belt and indeed across well beyond the swing states, um, there is a sense that, look, this pandemic is something that has hit us, but life has to go on. More importantly, the economy has to go on. The U.S. economy has to start generating jobs again. Commercial and business activities has to start uh, sort of chugging, uh, chugging forward and moving on and, you know, lifting this 
crisis only through economic activity. So I think therein lies the clue to the, the sort of the collective psychology of the disdain for masks, for hand washing, for social distance and for lockdowns. So right. it, it really does depend on this perspective. And unfortunately, the two sides are not linked. I mean, the epidemiologically, again, the, this uh, pandemic will follow the trajectory that it will based on the sort of medical counterpunches that are being delivered or not being delivered. So if there, if as Mr. Trump has been having these massive rallies without people wearing masks, uh, you're gonna you're going to see this. If you have these super spreader events, like for around the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett in the White House, you're going to have events. The pre president himself uh, was, uh, uh, you know, fell victim. He got infected by COVID, and uh, there was a serious question at one point in one of the debates whether, you know, he had infected. Uh, Joe Biden or not, but as it turned out, he hadn't. But these are th this is the sort of stark difference that you have between those who embrace science and epidemiology and understanding a pandemic, and those who put uh, who look past it in the sense that they are looking at the economy, they're looking at livelihoods. You can't really uh, dismiss their side entirely, but you can certainly point to a large gap in uh, the way they are approaching it. Right. So um, all the all the polls seem to indicate that uh, Mr. Biden is winning. In fact, I think since the start of this race, he's consistently held this kind of national lead in the polls. Though, um, you know, you'll find a lot of analysts, I think, basically have this kind of uh, trauma from what happened in 2016, where all the polls similarly showed that uh, Hillary Clinton was uh, well on her way to winning. And so um, even if you watch US TV news right now, you'll find some people saying, look, I just can't, I just don't believe the polls. I know that the polls are saying something, but we still can't buy it. Um, so just to sort of recap, because this is an issue that was in the last election and also in this one. Um, what is it about the Trump voter? And, you know, uh, why does uh, uh, she or he not fit in with this kind of polling system, uh, which is such an American institution around elections and politics? No, absolutely, Chand. Uh, I think the big question is why polls fail to predict the 2016 uh, Trump victory. And there, there's been a lot of studies on that subject. Uh, but I think the sort of broad consensus is now to also ask the question itself differently, which is, what are we actually trusting the polls to do? If the answer is that we expect them to predict the future or a future outcome, then I think the broad trust that you spoke of, institutional trust even of that Americans have or American analysts would have in polls is possibly misplaced. But if the answer is that polls are meant to reveal the public's priorities and values, that is why people vote the way they do, then polls are the best tool. And as part of that, what I would add is that polls at a national level, for example, don't really tell you who's going to win, uh, if nothing because of the electoral college. It doesn't depend on a national average or a national balance of opinion on Trump's job performance versus Joe Biden's uh, popularity. It depends on what's happening in a specific precinct in Florida, where you know there has been uh, maybe some redistricting of the of the of the, of the voter, voting landscape, or some other factor like that, where maybe a targeted Facebook campaign has really successfully reached out to a certain community. It goes down to really really small factors. So I think uh, again. It's just like people kind of rush to conclusions about what results are in. They, there is a sense of rushing to conclusions based on polls, which is entirely, statistically speaking, even misplaced. Uh, they're not designed to tell you what you think they're telling you. Uh, 
Secondly, uh, another reason why the 2016 polls possibly fails quite spectacularly is because of what uh, statisticians call non-response bias. That is when certain kinds of people systematically do not respond to surveys despite you know, the survey organizers trying to reach out to all parts of the electorate. Right. So for example, uh, we know that some groups, including less educated voters who are key demographic for, the, for uh, Mr. Trump on election day, are consistently hard for pollsters to reach. Uh, and then it's also possible that many of those who were polled were simply not honest about who they intended, intended to vote for. And I think that was what you also alluded to. That is, uh, in fact, that has been uh, that idea itself has been appropriated since then by Mr. Trump, uh, and he calls them the shy Trumpers. That is those who possibly consider right. it socially undesirable to uh, honestly ad admit to what their voting preferences are. Uh, and another possibility, yet again, involves the way that pollsters identify likely voters. That is, people who will actually get out on the day and vote. Uh, and you know, you can't really know in advance who's going to do that. So pollsters develop various models to predict who's going to vote. And they use, they look at factors such as, you know, voter enthusiasm, however they measure it. But the risks in that is that even small differences in the way you model that can lead to sizable differences in your election prediction. So for example, in 2016, a sense of lack of enthusiasm on the Democratic side uh, may have actually rendered these models quite unworkable in some parts of the Rust Belt. I mean, even if you look at, uh, you, uh, if you look at, uh, you know, the Democratic leadership's own analysis of what happened, you look at what Michelle Obama says in her autobiography, she talks about a tremendous disappointment about the Democratic side letting uh, everyone down in 2016 because the, of the sense of terrible uh, lack of, you know, enthusiasm. So these kind of surprise sentimental forces are completely missed by many, many of these polling models. And so they can go quite off the. And actually, I should mention there that I, I myself kind of delved a little bit into the New York Times uh, predictive model. And indeed, this was actually reflected by Real Clear Politics and many other uh, pollsters in 2016. And I looked at how much they projected each of the swing states uh, to uh, which way they predicted each would go. And then I looked at the actual result. and. I mean, whether through error or actual bias, you look at you're looking at a cumulative um, sort of a, a difference in the assessment, which is something to the order of 58 plus percent across 14 swing states. So, you know, I'm not saying that nobody has gone back and revisited these models and corrected them. We have some evidence that they have, but there has also been a, a, a lot of reports saying that such corrections have not been satisfactorily undertaken by many many of these polling agencies. So I think we should, uh, if there's one thing that re a listener should take away from this, it is that, you know, these polls are to be taken, uh, not entirely with a pinch of salt, but should be very cautiously approached this time as well. Right. And Narayan, uh, just one final question to close. Uh, and it's about Joe Biden, um, who we haven't, in fact, uh, we haven't really mentioned so far. Uh, so Mr. Biden has basically been campaigning on uh, what he's not, um, and that he's not He's not Mr. Trump, obviously. And uh, he hasn't really needed to come out because of that with very coherent policies of his own. And by the looks of it, he hasn't even needed to really even campaign very much because it suits, um, you know, it suits the strategy of saying, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about COVID, so I'm not going to go and hold these super spreader events uh, like Mr. Trump is. So um, it is actually a rather, it's turned out to be a rather simple campaign strategy all around. Um, and is it going to be enough to take him over the line? 
Well, uh, that's a great question, Jayant. I think it you've characterized it perfectly correctly. He has, in a sense, been the candidate of default uh, in the sense of exactly what you said, which is, I am not Trump. And is that enough? I, I think for those who are committed, registered Democrats, uh, who have or those who have suffered immensely from some aspect of the Trump administration's policies, whether the failure to curb the pandemic leading to fatalities, you know, among their own friends and families, or those who have lost jobs. These are people who would be seeking an alternative. These are people who would be fighting even for an alternative. But I, I really think, again, it comes down to the numbers because the assumption that many would make is that given Mr. Trump's record, uh, his his time in, in office over the last three and more years, he the things that he has done are dis, are distasteful. And that is not entirely true. There is a large number of American voters who are quite happy with his policy of what you could call broadly nativism, America first. And, you know, that goes even into the foreign policy realm, you know, ripping up the deal with Iran, pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, uh, you know, undoing the thaw in relations with Cuba, any number of things you could talk about. So, and of course, even, you know, whatever, payments to NATO allies, getting, you know, the trade war with China, regardless of, you know, the true economic assessment of the damage it has done. Um, you know, there is a sense that the trade war with China has actually is actually representative of Mr. Trump fighting for the common American, the blue collar worker, the small business owner, those impacted in the Rust Belt. So I think this is basically, again, two very, very diametrically opposed worldviews clashing. And uh, Joe Biden's approach of literally being the default candidate, he who has not done all the things that uh, Donald Trump has done, uh, will only win him those who already share that worldview. And I think, unfortunately, that is a not the best strategy to follow in a world where independent and undecided voters make a massive difference to the final outcome. And that, again, as we saw, said earlier today, goes back to the electoral college system. A very small percentage of voters actually decide the final outcome in the US election. And if you are seeking to win those people over, your approach your worldview, I, I would assume, would have to be a lot about building bridges, bipartisanship, meeting halfway. And in a sense, Joe Biden has tried to do that. So while Mr. Trump accused him of being, uh, you know, pro-China and taking a soft line on China, he has come out through this inevitable sort of the immense pressure of the pandemic. Inevitably, he has come out to say that he would have a, a tougher line on China. Uh, you know, similarly, you know, there are questions on immigration where there might have been divergence between the two parties earlier. The Democrats are now also a little firmly uh, uh, sort of back towards a more systematic approach towards a path to citizenship and issues like that, where they want, they, you know, emphasize legal migration over undocumented movement of workers. And I think this is all because of the pressure of the pandemic, the job loss, the suffering economy. But I think uh, Joe Biden might have it might co be coming a bit late because Mr. Trump has literally been going on about his paradigm and his worldview for the last three and a half years or more. And, um, you know, the people on his side or possibly even the undecideds are uh, have been listening to him, if not been convinced by him for all this time.
Right, Narayan, I think we'll wrap it up there. So we're going, we're going to keep a close watch on the elections, of course, over the next few days. And I'm sure we'll be returning to these topics again in some form or the other very soon. Thank you for joining us for this preview. Thanks for having me, Jan. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.